I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the All Stats Aren't We review of the Chelsea home game and a preview of the Brighton home game. I'm Darren Driver, ruminating on the Gandhi quote that sounds so much like Bielsa that it hurts a bit. To believe in something and not to live it is dishonest. Angus, can you hear me? And I'm here with John McKenzie, the living embodiment of the Gandhi quote that we all wish Jesse Marsh would pay attention to. Speak only if it improves the silence. <laughs> and finally, the man acting on the Gandhi quote we may wish Luke Aylin and Dan James had paid attention to. <laughs> Whenever you are confronted with an opponent, conquer him with love rather than studs in the shin. It's our very own love machine, Adam Elliott. How are you doing, Adam? I'm not sure about a love machine at the moment. I've not got a lot of love to give for a love machine. I've seen your behaviour on the Discord. You throw it around freely. <laughs> a lot of love for Stefan and Alfie in there, yes, but not a lot of love for my football team at the moment. And uh, not a, love for, a lot of love for football at the moment, really, either. But I did enjoy watching Graham Potter's Brighton lately. I think they're, they're a good team. and Well, that worries me, but a lot of love for them. So they've been elevated to Graham Potter's Brighton now. Is that a bit like Frank Lampard's <laughs> insert name of team here? Is that yeah. where they've got to, Adam? That's good. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. John, how are you feeling? Hopefully, hopefully you're feeling a little bit more inclined to give love than Adam is. I'm always inclined to give love. You know me. That's, that's what they say about me, Darren. <laughs> that's your reputation all over, that is, John. <laughs> yeah, positively brimming over with positivity and affection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, um, I spent my evening in the East End Upper last night um, and was not filled with love, affection, joy, happiness. But luckily I did have a nice bottle of Coca-Cola with me that I could drink through the game and that, that got me through. That was, a, that was the best bit of my night was drinking that bottle of Coca-Cola. So this is a double header episode. So we'll be reviewing the Chelsea game and previewing the Brighton fixture. So John, as ever, will, will lead the review portion of the podcast and then I will take over to guide us through the, the Brighton um, p- preview. So with that in mind, John, my friend, over to you. Yeah, and it's an interrogation with a large dollop of deja vu, I think, because 
yesterday's game feels very similar to the previous game uh, against against Arsenal. Obviously, there was the red card, and uh, then we sat back, barely created any chances, and created nearly the majority of our chances through set pieces, but not quite. Um, so, hopefully, we won't be covering too much of the same ground. Um, I've tried to think of some topics that are a little bit out of the. Uh, the route that we took last time so we'll kick off with question one um, I'll, as always I'll pitch this one at Darren Jesse Marsh said in the post-match that despite the early goal the game was going fairly well until the red card on the 25th minute do you agree it depends what he means by going fairly well really I mean we hadn't conceded any more goals other than the one that went in in what the third minute was it the third minute it was something like that yeah yeah so we hadn't conceded any more goals up until that point but we'd had a couple of lucky escapes um, and we'd summarily failed to make any inroads into Chelsea as an attacking unit and they were passing the ball around us at will they were moving our, our press around uh, very very easily they were getting in down our left-hand side in behind there very you know what felt like very frequently um and so i think it would be reasonable to say that i do not agree with jesse marsh's assessment um i i i don't know what he sees when he when he makes these comments or whether these comments are what he genuinely believes or whether he's saying them because he wants to give the you know to continue that kind of positive messaging for the players um and to kind of um, keep any criticisms away uh, from the press, but um, it just felt to me like like we all go to a game against one of these top sides expecting to lose, right? Um, and I, and I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is how pathetic we were. Like we, I, th- I just thought we were pathetic in every area. Like the press was pathetic, our attack was pathetic, our defending was pathetic, the defensive unit m- moved. Um, in, in completely kind of disjointed ways, the attacking unit had no fluency um, or link up whatsoever. So no, I, I really I, I felt like it was poor from the first second to the last. Yeah, and Adam, on the topic of the red card, we've now had two red cards in two games. So there's a lot of people on social media, many of whom have Jesse Marsh AVIs in their profile, who are saying that Jesse Marsh can't be blamed for for the red cards. How much do you think that we that the Jesse Marsh actually is to be blamed for these red cards? I think um, there's a few things that have made me think that there may be a case to argue that he he is um, almost cheering up the players to a point at which they are getting a little bit too over emotional. And this week I watched the video back of his halftime talk against Liverpool when he was the RB Salzburg manager, and it's obviously done the the, the rounds because it's a fairly hilarious mixture of German and English um, uh, emotional chat. But it makes a lot of points in that talk, which actually, if you think about them, they are quite evocative. Um, And I mean, the first thing that he asks them is how many fouls did you make in that half? He was like, maybe two, Um, implying that fouls are a good metric by which to determine whether or not you're putting in the requisite amount of effort. Um, The other thing that he does, he talks a lot about fighting in that, um, and, and when he was talking about fighting in that video, he's actually doing like an elbowing motion as though you're properly jagging someone in the, in the ribs with your, with your, with your elbow. So, um, it got me thinking whether or not actually the, the fact that a lot of what Jesse Marsh's tactics are about in terms of the off ball stuff is actually on, on that fine line between, you know, pressing and violence. So have you got any <laughs> thoughts on that? Maybe there's something in it. We're we're winning A League this season. We're winning the Cards League. Looks like we're 
clear favourites for that one. 97 yellow cards. We're nearly at that, that golden 100 mark. It probably is going to happen, isn't it, in the next two games. Um, I do think it is funny that he's asked us to be more aggressive. And, and since that happened, we've had back-to-back red cards. And obviously, I don't think he meant, oh, you, you should go into tackles like Ailings where he could have stood Martinelli up. Martinelli was slightly off balance on the byline. Not really anywhere to go. If Ailing just stands him up, if he tries to go past him, there's probably a covering defender. I don't think he means smash into people like that. Dan James last night, where you can't have any complaints. I think the players have to take some responsibility as well. You you shouldn't be losing your heads like this in in big moments. We need these players fit. We need them ready for the running. And now we're already down on options, and we're adding to that with Ailing and and Dan James. They're not going to be able to play a part in any of the final games. Um. So yeah, maybe there is maybe there is something to it in the sense of he's asking them to be more aggressive and they're so hyper emotional almost that they're doing things that are out of character. But at the same time, I think you have to have like a line drawn almost of of control and and then both Dan James and Ailing weren't in control and by the letter of the law, it's a red card. So there's a time and a place in my opinion, and that's not it. Darren, you must have thoughts. Yeah, it kind of presupposes that we were lacking in aggression before, which I just, I just don't see. Um... At all, I, th- I thought we were, we actually played very aggressively under Bielsa. No, the aggression was different in that it wasn't sort of you know kind of massively over the top and physical, but there was there was a huge amount of aggression in the way that we played already. Um, the second thing is that that comment about how many fouls did you commit in the first half pre- sort of sounds to me like he's got KPIs for the players <laughs> about how many fouls they should commit per half, which just entertained me as a thought. Overall, I just think it just feels like everybody's just kind of lost their heads. Like and there's a sort of you know there was an incident not too long after Dan James walked where Calvin Phillips could very easily have been sent off for a really out of control swipe at somebody or other who'd irritated him in the previous challenge and um, I just yeah I I mean it's too late really to do anything about it now because we've already lost two two players um, for the for the final two games but um, you know it it really needs controlling quickly because it's most unbecoming (laughs) it's just frustrating as well because when you talk about aggression sometimes you can mean sort of an aggressive press or you know hunting after players quickly or whatever that might mean not sort of sliding into tackles or elbowing or whatever it might be and and that seems to be what we're doing and that's what's disappointed me i think um you've got to hold your nerve in these sorts of games now and we're the team that are not holding their nerve burnley have their own issues injuries and whatnot but at the very least the players aren't completely losing their heads and they seem to be able to go again um and recently they put a little run together for that reason and i guess like there is a certain mental toughness during a relegation battle and we maybe don't have it maybe a lot of these players have just never had to experience this sort of thing before many of them haven't and so a lot of them are just are just making uncharacteristic errors but we need to get a, a hold of it we really do i mean dan james has been pretty close to this before right he's he's had some pretty ridiculous challenges both under bielsa and under marsh and he's been applauded for it in the past for, for playing right on the edge and if you play right on the edge in this way then eventually you're going to step over the line and 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 do something like that well having said that i thought his challenge was Utterly ridiculous. Like, yeah. Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was stupid. Yeah. The others, I think, were were sort of on the edge, red cards because he went through a little bit late. Whereas that one was just full on GBH, wasn't it? Yeah, it was brain, absolutely brain, brainless. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Carrying on the red card conversation, question two for Adam. This is a question from Anthony Lockton, a listener. So thank you for sending this in, Anthony. He says, trying really hard, if you can, to give Marsh the benefit of the doubt. Do you think we'd have performed any better over the last 180 minutes of football if we'd kept 11 men on the pitch? What would the tactics have been with them all present? I'm struggling. In all honesty, against Arsenal, not really. Um, we looked in slightly better shape against Arsenal and we were in a in a back five when we changed away from the 4-2-3-1 because of the red card. Our defence was a little bit sturdier in the second half. I think there's another reason for that as well, which is that Arsenal maybe stepped off a gear a little bit as well. And, and I'm fully aware of that as well. But in the we, if we'd had 11 v 11, we might have been able to attack and create a little bit better. That would have been the hope, I suppose, um, in the 4-2-3-1. But we never really got the chance to see it. To yesterday's game, uh, I don't really know what would have been different because I don't really have any words for starting our best creative force as a right wing back and starting a centre-back in Pascal Strauch as a left wing back when he's clearly not very athletic. He doesn't have a, a great amount of pace. I don't really have any words for it. I think you're kind of doomed from the start. So would yesterday have really gone any better if we'd had 11 versus 11? I'm not so sure. You want Rafinha as high as possible in lots of one against ones or backpedaling their defenders you know and we didn't really get him in any of those situations he said he's backpedaling himself from Alonso um, which is not what you want him doing all game you want him in dangerous zones on the pitch if Dan James starts at right wing back and Rafinha plays up front that might have made a little bit more sense in my head but I don't understand it and for me it, it, we were kind of doomed in both these games um, but maybe against Arsenal at a push we could have looked a little bit better 11 versus 11 but I think against Chelsea when you go system for system and you're playing your best player in the position that he was in it's, it's just you're going to fail simple as that I agree with what you're saying fundamentally Adam but to be to be fair what from in the ground anyway what it looked like to me was that in the defensive phase Rafinha was playing as the right back in a 5 Four one effectively, but that in a possession phase he was playing as the right winger in what what what, what looked more like a four four two because Robin Cock was shuttling across and Pascal was staying at left back. So there was a positional shift going on. The problem for me was that we weren't able to get the ball to any of our players in in decent attacking areas. Um, uh, but fundamentally, I'd, I I agree. I don't think it would have made any difference. I don't. Think, I just. Like, I think the only the only potential difference it could have made because I don't think any of the goals were down to the fact that we had a player less in either game particularly, um, and the the only thing reason it might have made a difference is because I think we've clearly gone into these last few games with a game plan which is to try keep it tight for 75 minutes to stay as close to the opponent as we can in terms of scoreline until 75th minute and then try and commit something to attack and we might have had an additional body. But that's all it would have been. It would have, it would have just been an additional body to commit to the attack and not to have someone further back. But I, don't, I, I genuinely don't think it would have made a lick of difference because I think Chelsea would have won that game 3-0 last night if we'd have had 12 players, to be honest. Yeah, it's hard to say, isn't it? Especially given that in both games we were get, we were already goals down by the time the red cards happened. And against Arsenal, we were two goals down. And I, I guess the... There's an argument to be made that actually having a player sent off in the Arsenal game helped us out a little bit because it, it it forced our hand to sit a little bit deeper. But, you know, you don't want to be defending a 2-0 losing position, which is kind of how we ended up playing it. But um, I suppose the, the issue for me is that I'm not seeing any evidence that what we're trying to do is really working. And I think the pro- part of the problem is, is that Jesse Marsh seems to be judging the games on the basis of the fact that do we look like we're overrun which is I think fair enough if you're in a 
drawing position if you're trying to control the game and you're trying to hit on the break. But in both of these games, as I've said, we've been in losing positions and we've been trying to control the game um, and and hit them on the break. And, and it, it, it just hasn't really happened. I mean, I've said in both games, in the last game we had three chances in the whole game, um, all of them from set pieces, um, one from two from a corner and one from a free kick. And in the in the Arsenal game, I mean, the only reason we got down um, the field for the the um, the the corner, I think, was because we took a couple of free kicks to actually gain territory as well. Same yesterday, we didn't get our first uh, open play chance on goal until the 70th minute. We had a couple of shots from outside the box from the first corner. I think it may have been one of the f- few corners we had in the game. And then we had, yeah, 70 minutes chance, which was a uh, Rafinha header. Then we had an 84th minute chance, which was a header from Robin Cock, which was the, the good chance that we created. At this point, we're already 3-0 down. Uh, and then we had a 89th minute shot from distance from Mateus Click. And it's, I think I would be a lot more open to the sorts of things that Jesse Marsh has been saying in those situations, if I felt as though there was some kind of plausible sense that we could get back in the game, but you're not going to get back into game. I mean, we did against Arsenal, but you're not going to you're you're not going to be lucky enough to score one in three chances every time you go forward. Um, and again, we we barely created anything. I think it was 0.5 xg uh, per stats bomb yesterday. Most of that would have been Cox Chancellor, right? That would have been about point point three, point four. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so you, what you're basically saying is you're going to get maybe one good chance a game and you just cannot repeatably and consistently finish your one okay chance a game. Uh, that's just the just the way it goes. So, yeah, I, I, I have sympathy that, you know, getting two players sent off in two games is is hard work. But the way that he looked like on the sideline when the second red card was given... He looked as though he he was looked as though he was a man who was just sort of aghast at the injustice of the world when both of those red cards were deserved and they were both you know the result of aggression which you know has been a big buzzword for him. So uh, on the other hand, I do feel a little bit hard to be sympathetic with him um, in in that respect. But let's move on from from this sort of um, chat because I think we can focus on some of the actual on pitch stuff in more detail and in in a useful way. So question three. Um, Darren, we absolutely need to talk about the forward press. You were in the stand up, as you've said, so you got a pretty good view of what was going on. So, what do you think went wrong with that forward press? And I'm I'm talking particularly the the you know the the press when they have the build up. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So when they've got the build up and we've got eleven players is what I'm going to principally focus on because I think after that it becomes a, a nonsense. Um, so yeah, there, there are. Um, there are two things really that I think was going wrong with the press. Um, one of which was that the unit of five that were up front that were trying to move in that kind of I'm going to use my favourite pentangle word. They were moving <laughs> in it. They were they were trying to move in a pentagon and to to kind of to try and um, funnel the ball into certain areas and or to, to try and kind of block passes into central areas. Um, and one of the, one of the issues was that um, Chelsea. Just all they did to to combat that was just spread players wide right across the pitch, so that they could so that as many times as they moved that unit across the pitch, eventually a gap would appear and they'd just pop the ball through it, and it just happened consistently. And then the second thing um, was that there was an enormous gap between the front five and the back five, um, which which made it really very easy um, for two things to happen. One of which was that. Um, players like Mason Mount were able to drop into that gap and make themselves available for passes and then, and then drive straight at the back five or a centre-back would follow them 
or a, defend, a defender would follow them into that area and create a gap which Chelsea could then pop the ball into and, and have someone running onto it. So um, I think, you know, one of the one of the buzzwords around Jesse Marsh's football and one of the things that we've talked about consistently since he came in is that what we're looking for is this team to be compact, both front to back and side to side. And it would be fair to say that we were compact side to side in the front portion of the pitch in that front five last night but that there was then we just weren't compact front to back at all and then we were actually spreading the, spreading right across the pitch in the back line um so not compact there either um and it just it just meant that it was sort of unsatisfactory all the way around really and then of course when we went down to um to 10 men um, what really happened was that, that that front five became a kind of vague and notional and um, suggestion of a front four press, but it was really uncommitted and would just very quickly drop back into the into the to a line of three uh, five three one um, with a with a mid block and then eventually into a low block. So um, you know the, the the press was just our press anyway was just a non entity in the game at all, and Chelsea were just basically completely untroubled by it and able to play through it all evening long. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've talked a lot about how with Jesse Marsh teams, the weaknesses tend to be in the wide areas. But with this five, this back five that we're playing, you lose a little bit of that because even if your wing back pushes up high, which is what you want them to do when the ball is on one side, you want them to push up onto, uh, you know, hold the, the wider player deeper you can then have a centre-back to sort of fill in the gap that you don't have when you've got a back four. Um, so we're, we're now in a weird situation where, I mean, obviously there's still the option to switch it from one side to the other and we're still seeing that. Um, but I feel as though already oppositions are now targeting us in that central space that opens out with the gap between the back five and the front five. And um, something that I did a Twitter thread on just showing why it is the case that if you are going to play an aggressive high press, and we, I felt as though the the high press yesterday was maybe the most aggressive we've seen it. Um, in particular, the the two players in the double pivot pushing right up to support the front three. And the problem is, is that it, unless you push up your back line with that front five, you end up just having such a large portion of the pitch that you are expected to actually cover as a front press that it becomes impossible. And so we we seem to be in a a weird situation where we simultaneously wanted to press high but didn't want to commit our back line to a high line because we were scared of getting done in behind. Um, and I think the, re- the result was is that just so many times Chelsea got the ball into that central space in between our double pivot and our back line, which is exactly the sort of space that we're looking to hit when we're attacking. And they just they made absolute hay um, in, in those areas. And another thing that I've noticed as well is that we're seeing a lot of the time that when you get into that channel between the, the 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 front and the back, oppositions play the ball along the edge of the penalty area quite a lot. Martin Erdegaard did it the other day um, with a really nice flicked back heel where he played the ball through to whoever it was coming in on the wide areas. And that seems to be a, a ball which we're seeing quite a lot from, from these um, Premier League oppositions where they can play the ball into the central space from a wide area and then play it immediately out to the other side in this you, again, you get your player one v one, and it's it's just too easy a movement that that sort of along the the penalty area uh, ball. So, yeah, big problems I think with the with the pressing. Um, Adam, I'll, I'll I've got a sort of follow up question for this um, from friend of the podcast Udav, who says 
high press not working again. If Marsh really wants pragmatism, why does he bother his teams to press and not just sit back? So, yeah, what's your take on the high press? And do you think that actually that pragmatism of sitting back and, and bedding in would, would be any better? I'm not sure it would be any better. But the main problem I have is that we've had Marsh for so long now and yet we're still seeing issues with this high press when one of the main functions of Jesse Marsh's football, wherever he's been, has been to have a well-functioning counter-press. And if you have that, it can be sort of the main way you actually attack teams. You win the ball high, you get them caught off guard and you manage to score quickly. We've barely ever done that. We are now two and a half months in. So maybe Dobbs right, maybe... a more pragmatic system might suit us because this clearly isn't working. He can't get his ideas across in the way that he would like to. And for me, it, it just feels like we've now traded like a slightly better defense for just a completely broken attack. We don't counter press to win the ball properly. We don't possess the ball well when we have it. And Leicester and Norwich aside, we haven't been good enough in any of the games really. And we've been saying it for a while, even when we were getting results. And that's my, my issue. But this is not just a, a run of three games where we've played Man City, Arsenal and Chelsea and they're three really good teams and we've had red cards and we've just got unlucky. It's not. We just don't attack or counter-press or press in any way like that we should under Marsh. And that's the problem I have when uh, you expect after two and a half months to have seen just a hell of a lot more and sending the players on holiday and things like that. I just I just can't understand it um, at the moment. So, yeah, that's where I'm at and maybe Udav's right maybe it would have been correct to have been more pragmatic over the last three games but at the same time we need points so whatever is the best way to get them I suppose can I just briefly get on my soapbox here I hate pragmatic as a synonym for defensive because to be pragmatic you have to say that what a pragmatic approach to football is that you have to create you have to create chances and score goals in order to win games that's also a pragmatic statement um so I just I just want to kind of try and remove pragmatic from the language and try and name it for what it is which is which is defensive and attritional yeah, and I think part of the problem is is that in the last two games we have been defensive and attritional. Now, in part, that's been prompted by the fact we've been a man down. But equally, if you're going to play negative football, and I'm not I'm not going to say negative because I don't even think that it is negative. Because again, I think there's cases to be made that you should play in that way. If you're going to play deep lying, absorptive football where you're going to try and expand at speed then you have to be able to possess the ball and expand at speed. And the problem that we've seen is that we're not able to do that. So we've we've basically been playing fairly stodgy football at the back and the only chance we've had really of getting the ball into the opposition box has been from set pieces. And that's for me, that's the issue, is that it's just not sustainable. We we have a huge amount of work to do and we aren't able to to score those goals that we were going to have to score if we were to stay up. And so we've now go, yeah, okay, we've we've had those games against the top six. We've got two um, games against informed but non-top six opponents. And the big question for me is whether or not we're going to see an improvement on the field in those two games, despite the fact that we've just had these three horrible games. So that's the next question that I want to pose to you, Adam. What do you think is the impact of playing the last three games that we've played on the next two games. Do you think that it could be a case, of, as we often you would see with Bielsa, where you would just sort of take it on the chin and say, OK, top six opponents, we usually get battered by them. But then we have enough in terms of possession stuff. We have enough in terms of the off-ball stuff to actually cause problems to these teams. Do you feel that confident with Jesse Marsh now after a, a bit of a grim three-game run? Absolutely not. Um, we're now at the stage where we're throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. 
We've played four two two two. We've played four two three one. We've played three four three. He is at the point now where he still doesn't know his best team, his best formation, and maybe it is a flexibility thing depending on who we're playing. But at the same time, I just don't know what we gain from the last three games that he's going to think I'm definitely going to do this against Brighton or I'm definitely going to do this against Brentford. Maybe a push you could say some of the stuff we did against Man City could be useful in in these games, but. I, I don't have confidence right now. I, I don't know about YouTube. I don't see where we get a win now I, from these last two games. Brighton are a good, solid, organised team. They're tactically flexible. Um, they've just beat Man United 4-0. Um, Brentford's they'd, they'd love to beat us, I'm sure. They'd love to relegate us. They don't like us. There's that video of Cooper and Dallas that's gone round. Their players, Ivan Tony's retweeted it this week. Thomas Frank doesn't like us. He was quite outspoken against us when we were in the Championship. I just think it's going to be a, a really tough game in that game as well. So at best, I'm now looking at two points, no matter how we do it. I don't know what formation we're going to play in the next game. We'll obviously come on to that, but I don't know what Marsh is going to set up as. And I'm just going to have to hope that two points is enough if we manage to get them and Burnley manage to lose um, either all of their games or only draw one. But yeah, at the moment, we're at the point where we're just seeing whatever could work, whatever sticks. And two and a half months in, I'm sorry, that's not good enough for me. Yeah, Darren, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I do have thoughts, and and I guess it. I guess what I would say is that yeah, I I would expect us to struggle against the three teams we've just played. Absolutely, I would expect City to beat as comfortably. I would expect Arsenal to to you know beat as more times than not. I would expect Chelsea to do the same. However, we didn't look good against Palace. We didn't we didn't look good against Watford. We didn't look good against Southampton. This is not just a problem against big six teams. The problem is is that we don't have a system when we get the football. And and if you if you can't if you can't have have you know make chances and if you can't uh, you know consistently gain territory and get get up into the top end of the pitch and try and be creative and try and um yeah and and score goals then it doesn't it doesn't matter how how well or not well you defend because you're not going to win games and we need we need to win one of these last two games as a minimum I think um but as like Adam I can't I really can't see it because I think Brighton uh, uh, have you know killed us in the, in a lot of the games we've played against them and, and Brentford although I think they're probably not amazing going forward I think they're very defensively solid and I think they'll they will really kind of um, make life difficult for us to create any chances against them. Um, so the the problem for me is is not that we've lost these last three games. It's just that whenever we've got the ball, we look clueless. That's the issue. Yeah, it's worth actually saying that in the game, the goals that we have generated have been either set piece goals or there's been the the the. the the game against Watford where we scored a couple of really nice long range efforts that we didn't actually have to do too much in terms of the progressive side. And then we had the the, the good chance, which was generated by Watford themselves. Um, and then the Wolves game as well, even the Wolves game, um, it felt as though we generated like a couple of situations where we had good clumps of chances, but they were few and far between. And we just sort of rattled the ball around a little bit until we got what got it on target and it went in. Um, and so it, it feels to me that that's, it's fine if you can get the ball into those situations, but we're just not doing it with the frequency that you need to in order to actually repeatably and reliably generate goals. Um, and so I'm sort of on the fence a little bit because I kind of think, well, you know, we might do that. We might go into one of these games and, and you know, 
the ball rattles around in the box and someone puts it in and then suddenly the game state changes and the opposition have to decompress and there's spaces that appear and we can we can maybe um, start trying to transition attack a little bit more um, that's just the way football is but I think the problem that I have is that in the long run we're just not consistent we don't have a process we're in the hands of the gods more often than not and I think over the course of a of a full season I don't think that you would be getting the sort of reliable return of investment that you would want um but maybe it'll be enough for us to stay up maybe it will but that like we're going to be in the same situation I think next season as well yes you may you may hope that that Jesse Marsh gets a few more players in and is able to generate more chances through those pressing moments that we've talked about but right now we're not seeing that and the as things stand I think we're going to have to do a huge amount of work rebuilding this team to be able to play that way and the big question is 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 it just worth the effort is it worth the risk is it worth the huge expense that it will have is it worth the the all of that with without the knowledge that this actually is a system that could work in the Premier League and I suspect it probably isn't and I would uh, say as a result of that then you might want to bring in a manager who's able to make the most of what we actually do have and then incrementally improve the, that rather than rip up the the copybook and start again and that brings brings me on to um the final couple of questions um again both of them listener questions so i'll put the first one to you darren it's from wes brown i don't think it's that wes brown um but he said (laughs) what was it that convinced orta etc that marsh was in some way bielsa like beyond pressing intensity is there any merit to this idea that's a good question um i i think hmm, i think pressing a commitment to pressing as a, as a style of play is probably the primary thing that that has convinced them that he's he's the right person. But also, I think um, a kind of commitment to using youth um, and and a, and a record of using young players in in his teams, I think, is probably the other thing that has that has really convinced them that he's he's the right person to take the the club forward. It certainly can't be based on anything that we've seen when when Leeds have the ball, and I think also. Because it was not man marking, I think is probably the 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 other thing that 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 they've you know they've decided to move away from that as a system to go to something zonal, but still trying to hang on to the pressing. Um, and yeah, other than that, I I really do struggle to see what this kind of notional link is that that um you know I think when I think Victor Otto described it as um yeah like a like an evolution or or as a as a natural continuation or something and nothing could be further from the truth in my mind unless unless Victor Arter only watches us when we haven't got the football um in which case i can probably see some link but um but when on the ball it couldn't be more different it really couldn't it's interesting because i feel as though this season we've actually generated quite a lot through counter pressing um i feel like that's the only way we've really been able to generate goals um so there's how many goals can you think of where it starts with maybe Luke Ayling just jumping in front of his man or even like Junior Furpo, Calvin Phillips, players like that, just jumping in front of their man, winning the ball back and playing it forward quickly to someone like Rafinha. So I can't kind of understand that element, but at the same time, we've only really, we only really played that style of football this season. And that was a season when we were already pretty bad. Um, and so it feels as though we've taken the style that was almost necessitated because we were at the end of the three-year cycle with Bielsa that we couldn't actually possess the ball and and generate good chances in that way and we just picked up on that counter-pressing side of things and said well there's Marsh good counter-pressing coach um, as you've said youth youth development aspects and also 
generally a company yes man he's been in the Red Bull system for a while he'll do what you tell him to do um, and he won't be anything like Bielsa off the pitch which I think is probably important for them as well just going to say I see I see the counter-pressing thing slightly differently because I see it that counter-pressing was one thing that we were able to do under Bielsa and there were a lot of other things that we were sure. able to do also to make chances in Bielsa's best moments and then as as some of those things fell away it became the primary sure. rather no, than I totally us. agree with that yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. and as we said before though the, the biggest difference between Marsh and Bielsa is that one is looking to congest the space and make it smaller and the other one's making the pitch as wide and big as possible so you're going from one extreme to the other that doesn't make any sense to me and our best players are like wider players I don't understand that whatsoever yeah and I think it's worth saying that you know a lot of people did question why does Bielsa use man marking and I think we now know the answer to that because if you are going to want to play wide expansive football in that way you have to pretty much match it up I think with a man-to-man press I think it's the only way that it can work um, but we had another question maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheeks from our good friend Jackie Buckets who um, asks and I'll pose this to Adam who's in the dugout at Brighton and who's in the dugout at Preston to start next year uh, so the, this is obviously a question about the the managerial future of Leeds United and maybe we are jumping on this question a little bit early but we had a lot of questions about this so I thought it was only fair to to maybe push the boat out and, and ask the first question. So, Adam? When I saw the running order, it's quite funny when I read that you were asking me this because me and Jackie actually had a long conversation last night in DMs about all, all of this, really. But yeah, I, I think we're kind of forced to stick right now. Um, I would remove him at the end of the season regardless of what league we're in. Personally, I'm at that point now. But I don't think you can remove him before Brighton and Brentford and, and just see if it works or whatever. I, I saw some people on Twitter, then it was tongue-in-cheek, but they were saying... Oh, could we get in, you know, Adam Forshaw while he's injured on the sidelines with, you know, whoever else? But it's not going to happen. I think we were kind of forced our hand into sticking with this at the moment. Um, and I got shot down a little bit by Darren yesterday in the group chat. Uh, I, I was joking. I was no, 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 no. I want to say this anyway. But, I didn't mean to be mean. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I, don't worry about it, Darren. It's just, um, do we really think that the club will remove him though at, at the at any point before next season? I think. I think we're going to have him next season if they're in the Premier League or the Championship person. I think that we'll stick with him. Um, I think we gave him a three-year contract, so we'll probably be seeing what he can do whichever league we're in. I don't trust the hierarchy at the moment to make the correct decision at all. Um, Yeah, it's just going to come down to whether or not this can improve a lot with recruitment. And I'm kind of at the point where I don't think it will. I think it might improve somewhat. I think there is an argument to be had in the championship that it could look more like a Salzburg team, Salzburg team, sorry, where you know they were the best team in the league, they had the best players. We could be be that team. We could be the team that retains enough of our good players at the moment and is really dominant in the championship and go out and smash the division with Marsh in charge. Sure, the recruitment's right again, but I I don't trust it, and I'd rather move towards a more possession based manager or coach next season um, and I've just lost faith completely and not just Marsh but the board as well to get this right the, the only time they've ever got it right this current regime is Bielsa and so unless we get lucky and do that but like I said I, I think Marsh is going to be here regardless of which division we're in yeah I agree um, for a number of different reasons I guess the first one is that if we stay up I think the managers board of managers will pat themselves on the back and say what a great 
plan we had and it worked out and we would have definitely gone down with with Bielsa at the at the helm uh, which is I think it's a fair argument to make but you have absolutely no way of knowing that but they will definitely try and spin that as their own brilliant genius plan uh, if we go down we're not going to get a better manager will be their thinking um, so we'll keep him if he wants to stay my suspicion is that he is not a very good sticker and I think he'll remove himself from the equation if anything happens so um, unless he um, unless he comes out and says as he did at RB Leipzig this is not a good fit um, I, I misunderstood the the remit of what I was expected to do I'm off um, I expect that that's a possibility but I don't think that the club will want him to leave at that point um, and they will give it at least until a point in next season if we are down before they've decided it's not going to happen with him before they remove him. But I don't know if you have any different thoughts, Darren. I really don't. And at, at this moment in time, I'm really struggling to care, to be honest, who's who's in the manager's chair. Um, it, it makes no tangible difference right now. We could, we could put a fucking traffic cone on, <laughs> on the touchline at the moment and it would be just about the same as it is now. So whatever. I mean, the ta- traffic cone would speak less, which would appeal to me, but... Yeah, I think we're all very much at the wake me up when Jess tenure ends, right? Stage of this, but you never know. Things may change. That may be different in in the Championship if we go down. Maybe different in the Premier League next season. But um, yeah, I think you'd have to be pretty positive at this point to have that sort of uh, thought trajectory right now. But that brings me to the end of the interrogation, and we'll move us on to the Brighton preview. So back over to you, Darren. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Excellent. So I start with bad news, dear hearts, and that is that we do not have a guest interview this week. So it's uh, well, so it's just doesn't it? But it does mean that we we get a chance, um, as 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 we like to do, to wax lyrical about Graham Potter, which I'm sure on that news, many listeners will be switching off immediately, and that's up to you. But we're going to have fun anyway. So um, I'm going to start with a question for you, Adam, which is about Brighton's uh, most recent game. So uh, in the most recent game, they beat Manchester United four nil. Um, and how much of that was Brighton being good versus Man United being uh, as as bad as we are? I think it's just both. I think it's a simple answer to this one. Um, Brighton are very good, in my opinion. One of the best teams outside of the big six in the league. But they managed to put a big six team to the sword. I think they've been threatening to do this for a while where they really, really have a go at a team and it all clicks for them. Um, this is the biggest win in the Premier League, the 4-0. And it happened to come against Man United. That's absolutely brilliant and I feel vindicated, in my opinion, of Graham Potter more and more when things like this happen. 
Yeah, there does seem to be this kind of, uh, maybe a section of fans, some of whom I respect quite a lot, who kind of um, don't really buy into the whole Potter hype train. Um, but, but John, we're, we're fully signed up over here, right? So uh, I'm going to ask you both, Adam, don't worry. Um, <laughs> so, John, why do you rate Graham Potter so highly? It's funny hearing you talk about fans who don't like Graham Potter. I, I find it funny because whenever anyone doesn't like Graham Potter, they always just point to the results and they say, well, if you're so great, why does he only win nine games a season, etc., etc." But I, I don't know. We've been watching a few Brighton games just to prepare for this in lieu of the fact we didn't have a, a guest. And um, I just watched Brighton and I'm like, how can you deny that Graham Potter is a good manager? You watch the games and you can see that Brighton are trying to do something. You watch you watch Graham Potter teams and it's like watching a Marcelo Bielsa team insofar as it, they're sensible. You look at them and you say, okay, these players maybe aren't the flashiest players in the world, but they know exactly what they're doing. Um, they're able to to carry it out and they are better than the sum of their parts. And I think any manager who can do that is is well worth celebrating. So for me, the the biggest upside of Graham Potter is, and um, Adam mentioned this before, it's, it's his tactical flexibility. Um, but it's not just a tactical flexibility that allows him to stymie what it is that other teams do well. It's a flexibility that allows him to get the best out of his own team as well. Um, the big thing about Graham Potter for me is that even when he was playing against... Uh, Marcelo Bielsa in all of the games that we played he absolutely thumped us every time even if we drew we deserved to lose in every one of the games we played in the Premier League era under under Bielsa and that's because Graham Potter is a smart manager he sees what it is that Marcelo Bielsa is, is trying to do and he thinks of ways to stop those things working and he has um, again a, a sort of plan for to, to really probe our weaknesses and, and cause us problems so yeah I've watched the last few games that Brighton have played and in both of those games you can see examples of things that he's doing that that are deliberately targeted to cause problems to the opposition's attack and uh, and and sort of needle the opposition's defence so that's why I think he's a great manager Adam the floor is yours my friend there's so many reasons for me if you've read into Graham Potter's background at all there's, there's a variety of reasons why I think he's just a top top manager um, his emotional intelligence, his leadership, he's done a, a master's degree in it. He also did a degree at the Open University in Social Sciences. I think that's a big, big plus point of him. Uh, he encourages the players to do things as a team, not just on the pitch, but off it as well. So he encourages things like yoga and theatre and singing and just lots of different social activities that he gets them to do to cultivate this sort of chemistry between them as well and I think if you were to make like a checklist almost of all the things you want from a manager I think he ticks off a lot of the boxes you want them to be tactically flexible both in the game and before games as well when you're setting up the team as John mentioned he's good at analyzing team's weaknesses and and finding ways to exploit that and if they are trying to negate what he's doing he finds a way around it a lot of the time as well uh, on and off the ball they're a strong team um we'll come on to that but they're very organized they're very good in the mid block um his man management i've just mentioned the imagine intelligence that he's got very very good with the players he he's good enough to be their friend almost at times but also Give, be the stern manager that you need as well and he's also got the eye for the player that you want as well um he him and dan ashworth have, have really created a really good team at brighton and they've made the team younger um much better technically and especially in the midfields and i just think he's a, a very clever man um the ostersons rise i don't know if anyone knows about it but i'm, I'm thinking of you now richard if you're listening because I, I want you to understand that this is 
pre-Swansea, this is back like starting around 2011, he um, took the team from the fourth tier to the Europa League in a span of about six years. Um, and he was at the centre of it completely in terms of recruitment, in terms of the way they were playing. And and then he obviously got the job at Swansea, made them finish 10th and just did excellent for them as well when they had just been relegated from the Premier League, again, making the team much younger. And he's done the same at Brighton. Everywhere he's gone, he's made the team younger and he's made them more technically sound as well. Um, and I, I just think he's he's wonderful. He had the third best expected goal difference last season in the Premier League. I don't quite know what it is this season, but they're still high up the table for expected goal difference and expected points. They're around 7th, 8th, ninth on most models. I think you're looking at possibly the best English manager in his generation. I think the only one that even comes slightly close is Eddie Howe, and I think Graham Potter's by far better. He's miles um, clearer of, of him in terms of his sort of tactical nuances during a game and and his sort of emotional intelligence as well. I think he's absolutely superb. And if there was a manager I could handpick in the world, he'd be right towards the top end of the list for, for Leeds United. But obviously that's never going to happen. Adam, mm-hmm. I'm blown away. I love this guy. I love this guy now. I, I, just <laughs> thought he was a good, I just thought he was a good football manager before, but now I think he could programme decent events at a community church hall. Um, so that, that'd be good. Um, so Adam, you talked a little bit about some of the tactical ideas. Start to fill that in for me. What do Brighton do on the ball that you like? Yeah, I'm going to pick out a couple of things here. There's there's a lot more to it, but there's a couple of things I want to mention. Um, the role of Mark Kukurea in recent games, obviously he's nominally been a left wing back throughout his career, even closer to a left winger at times. But in um, Graham Potter's system since Dan Burns left the club, they, he's been playing as the left centre-back a lot of the time. Um, and it's not because of an injury crisis necessarily or anything like that. It's because of the way they want it to build up and it's a way that they can be tactically flexible. So if they start in a 3-4-3 or 3-5-2, which they usually do, and Mark Kukurea is at left centre-back, there's a few different things that he can do. He can either help get push into midfield and give them an extra body. He's a decent ball carrier. Um, or if the team needs a little bit of a system switch, they can push him down to the left back role and move Lamptey, who's usually the right wing back, down to right back or Veltman if it's him and switch to a back four. Um, and this flexibility is what allows them to be so good. And for Brighton and Swansea, he used about nine or 10 different formations, even though we're used to seeing him uh, use a 3-4-3 or 3-5-2 most of the time. There are different switches that he will do during games. Um also, the roles of Lalana and Pascal Gross, uh, usually one of those players, or Basuma sometimes, I think, as well. They usually play as the deep line playmaker to receive the ball and look for to create further up the pitch. Um, Brighton usually attack with quite a good width, uh, but they will switch the play. Um, so they attack out the left with Kukurea. They can then switch over to the right to Lamptey, and he's got a lot of space to work into. He's obviously very quick. This is one of the main things they do. They also like to pull the ball back towards the edge of the box when they get into these situations to create from there or put a low ball into the box for the likes of Morpeg to, to get on the end of. And I just think they've got a lot of players that can play so many different positions. A bit like Bielsa, as John mentioned, that they can play sort of three or four different roles that they're able to then switch formations with the exact same 11 mid-game. And that's one of the main things that they do that I'm really impressed with in terms of what they do on the ball. But they're a really good possession team these days. They were second to us, um, his Swansea side, um, when we were in the championship under Bielsa. They were the, the second place team for possession. And, and they rank really highly as well for, for pass accuracy. That They're just a very, very good team, in my opinion. I think we're looking at a team that might 
push into the top eight next season. I think they're almost just a striker short and maybe a couple of other squad players, but it's not going to take a lot of work for them this summer, even with Dan Ashworth leaving the club. Um, and I know I'm talking a lot, I'm sorry, but I, I also just wanted to quickly mention Hobbsy wrote a, pay, a piece recently uh, on Dan Ashworth and um, I think everyone should read it because it was really, really good. Uh, the way him and Potter have worked together over the last few years has created just a really super team. Thanks, Adam. Uh, so, John, with with everything Adam just said in mind, um, can you just put yourself into the middle of the the game on Sunday and just try and imagine what Brighton might do on the ball that that might cause us some problems specifically in that game? Yeah. So, I think the the things that I would note and have noted from the last couple of games are obviously the stuff that that Adam's talked about with Kukurea forming a sort of outside centre-back slash flying wing-back and can get forward like he scored in that game against Manchester United, for example. Um, that sort of flexibility. So you've got coverage of a, a you know back three coverage, but also in possession, you're basically playing as a four. Um, they then have like a really narrow front three, which I think is interesting. Um, and they've done this for the last few games. Um, I'm not entirely sure beyond that, but in the games that I watched, they were doing this. So you've got Danny Welbeck as a striker and then your two wide players in the front three are, are behind him and very narrow um and in part that's because of their like on on uh, off ball press stuff but on the ball they still keep that really narrow and they leave a lot of space then for the wide players um so the wing backs in particular and Kukurea on the left to run into um and I wonder if we'll see that against us trying to keep the the back four or five whichever we go with as narrow as possible um in order to accentuate the the space that's available for those 1v1s in, in the in the wide areas um and then the other thing I would point out is that they play a double pivot and that double pivot sits quite deep um in, in a way that we, our double pivot doesn't because our double pivot has to push forward in order to help the press out uh, at, at times. Um, and so you, you you sort of get that defensive solidity from the back three becoming a back two, or I guess a back four really, with two centre-backs, uh, Kukurea pushing forward, and then you've got the double pivot just sitting in front of those two centre-backs and they can drop in one side or the other if they need to to help out with with any sort of defensive uh, positioning there as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's what, what we will see. We're going to see them, I think, trying to... Um, open up space in the wide areas through covering the spaces in the middle um, and, and you know, leaving those two channels free for their wing-back slash Kukurea. Um, the double pivot, I suppose the big question for us is, you know, if they do sit a little bit deeper, if they are a little bit more careful to avoid that sort of transition through the middle, that will cause us problems as well. Um, so those would be the things that I'd be looking out for on the ball. Good stuff. And I'm going to come back to you immediately to talk about their off-the-ball stuff. How do, how do you think that's going to look? Um, how do you, how, uh, tell me about their general principles off the ball first, actually. Yeah, please. Yeah, so as Adam said, I would probably call what they're doing mid mid-blocking. Um, but I would call it an aggressive mid-block if that isn't an oxymoron um, because what they're doing is they're going to fall back immediately. They're not going to press high until very specific triggers uh, occur, in which case they will then push forward. And actually what happens then is so the front the front players, the forward players will push forward and then you'll see them going man for man actually in the midfield areas. Um, and you can see this, they will pass players on. So it's not like a really strict man marking um, situation. But the idea is, is that you sit in a mid block um, and you, you try to prevent any progression from the opposition. And then if the opposition are then forced backwards, you then 
jump forward in the press and then you cover all of the passing options around that uh, around that sort of channel so very similar to sort of the thing that we're doing really i'd call that maybe an aggressive mid block and and the you're attempting to do that coverage but i think that they're much more flexible than a jesse marsh press um so you'll see the 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 midfielders thinking about who should mark who you've obviously got your your wing backs helping out there as well um and yeah that that's the the, the sort of general principle um of it um but yeah you be what you'll see i think is um at, at the weekend you'll see them sitting a little bit deeper letting us have possession around the back so the back four or five will have possession and they'll be making sure that the double pivot don't have any access to the ball really um so their forward players will be making sure that that, that those passing lanes and the and the pivots are are covered uh, and then like i say if that ball does go backwards and certain triggers are met then they'll push forward quickly and then try and get the ball turned over by forcing the ball um and and any passing options outside of that maybe urense deciding to dribble might be a trigger <laughs> that they want, might want to use certainly triggers me that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> adam so yeah Potter's obviously really smart in, in ways that we've talked about. So what's the smart way for him to set them up for this game, do you think? And what are the things that you're worried about? I feel like it doesn't matter almost because of the flexibility that I've, I've mentioned. If they want to play 3-4-3 or 3-5-2, that's fine because I think they'll play the personnel that could easily switch to a 4-2-3-1. I said the clock thing, it's almost like you rotate the team around and it, everyone just switches over to the side a little bit and then, oh, you're in a new formation and they'll do that in phases of the game, as John mentioned. When when they're in build-up, they might switch to a four as well. Um, so I think it's quite likely we'll see Sanchez, uh, Lamptey. I don't know if Webster's fit, but Webster and Dunk with Kukurea, if they are, uh, then it would be in midfield. If Basuma's fit, then he'll play. But if not, Caicedo's done really well since he's come in there. Um, probably play next to a more progressive player like uh, Pascal Gross. Uh, Leandro Trossard will be part of a hunt three, possibly with Danny Welbeck. And who was the one that played recently, John? Just remind me in that front three. Um, they've been playing McAllister in there. McAllister, yeah, that was the one. And so, yeah, that's kind of how on uh, left wing back will probably be Solly Marsh. Um, and that'll be their, their general setup will look 3 4 3 when the lineup's announced, but it could easily change mid-game like we mentioned uh and what was the other part of your question how do we how do we beat that i'm not entirely sure i'm quite worried it wasn't it wasn't that but you can say that if you want <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm very worried to be honest uh but uh, as john mentioned do we have to play well to win these games can we variance our way through enough maybe like brighton are probably going to dominate the ball and i'm very aware of that we don't have a good in possession style ourselves and they do but if we can nick it, if we can get enough moments, then, you know, that that would be one way. But I'm just worried with regards to personnel for us, how we're going to do that. We've not got Bamford. Possibly he might be back, but we're not sure. Harrison's looking touch and go, but he's unlikely to make it. And we don't even know about Rafinha yet. So where's the creativity and the goals coming from? If you're looking for a moment like that, where we might create something out of nothing. Otherwise, we've created a lot from set pieces lately. I'm not quite sure actually how good Brighton are from set pieces. Probably one of the only things I'm not aware of with Potter, but maybe that's a, an area that we could could look to. But there's not many things that I'm I'm scrambling for here. Um, I think it's likely that we we get dominated and hopefully we get at least a point, like I said, and hopefully two points is enough because I don't see winning another game this season. John, will Leeds do a, a five at the back or a four at the back, and does it even matter anyway? I think that five at the back the benefit of that is we actually have lots of centre backs we certainly played four centre backs the other day so 
I wonder whether or not that's going to sort of play our hand um, because if you play a back five, then you only need to get, you know, wing backs. Um, sorry, if you play a back five, then you only need to get five other players in that in in front of you. Um, so your front three and then your double pivot. And um, so I expect they would keep the double pivot the same, maybe. Um, I don't know what's happened between Jesse Marsh and Mateus Click, but it does seem to have been that there's been a falling out. Um, so Phillips and Bay, and then I guess you've got Rodrigo, Joffe, maybe Harrison if he's available, um, Rafinha if he's available, and that sort of fill, fills your quotient, really. Um, so the back five, I suppose, solves that problem. If you're going to do a back four, then you've got to squeeze another player into that front three somewhere. And there's, there's just absolutely no spare options, really. Sam Greenwood, I suppose, is the other option. But you don't really want to go into these games with two youth players, however, three youth players, I should say, in that block of five, however much you rate them. Um, you know, you, you don't feel confident that that's going to necessarily do enough for you to, to get the points. So I, I suspect maybe a, a, a five, but only based on the fact that it seems as though the personnel available from the senior squad is is angled that way. Yeah, I probably agree with that. Um, and just to say, I think the word on Rafinha was that it was just cramp and that mm. they took him off as a precaution. So hopefully Well, that's good because that, we'll be able to play him at wing back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, uh, yes we will we will be able to do that um adam i can't even get my head around how to construct a leads team for this game and and as john said it does look a bit a bit difficult like are we going to be able to get enough of our good players on the pitch to to make any meaningful impact on this game i hope so i hope that there's at least a couple of the good ones like i mentioned bamford maybe has his touch and go to play if we can get a couple of them on the pitch, we might have a chance, especially in attack. If we can keep it just tight at the back, like John mentioned, play back five. If you want me to have a stab at a team, I'm not even going to try because there's just so many players that might be out. We already know about Dan James, we already know about Ailing, but I'm on about more the Harrisons, Rafinha's, Bamford's. They all have a chance, but we don't know yet. Hopefully it is just a dead leg for Rafinha and we can get him on the pitch in, in some way. Uh, Hopefully we've learned our lessons and he's not going to be playing right wing back. Um, I mentioned return of the Shaq last time. That's probably the one thing that I would see as a potential option for right wing back to take Rafinha out and put him somewhere else. If, if Rafinha's injured, maybe that also happens. But even if he's not, I would like to see that. Um, but otherwise, it's probably going to remain much the same that we've kind of seen, which is frustrating for me because I'd like to see Pascal play in defence, not as an actual left wing back. I'd like to see him at the heart of the defence somewhere. But yeah, we'll see. Um, I think it's difficult to say with what John said in attack. There's, there's not that many options that are senior players now. We're kind of scrambling around for youngsters. If Harrison and Rafinha and Bamford are all out, then I, I'm very worried, Darren. I can guess a team if you want. Go on, John. Go, go for it. So Melier, this is what I think he'll go with. Melier in goal. I think he'll go with Junior as the left wing back. And then it'll be Cooper, Llorente and Strauk in the middle. Not in that order, but as the three centre-backs. And then Robin Cock as the right wing-back. And then I think it would be Bate and Phillips in the double pivot. And I think it will be Harrison, Rafinha and one of Rodrigo or Bamford. That's what I think he'll go with. Okay. Oh, feels a bit Warnocky, doesn't it, anyway? <laughs> I think Phil did actually say that Harrison's unlikely to make it. He's possible, but unlikely. Okay. So we'll see. In which case, right, yeah, who knows? To be honest, I would be playing Joffy in that position anyway. I think that's probably mm. the best position for him, like coming as a wide player into in behind the strikers, but we've not seen that yet. So. And I just want to say, Adam, that 
that I do apologise for not picking up on your Return of the Shack joke last week. I know how upset you were that I missed it, but my internet broke up as you went, Return of the Shack! And I sort of, <laughs> otherwise I would have gone, oh my God, or something like that as in response, but I, I missed it, and I just want everyone to publicly acknowledge Adam's fantastic Return of the Shack joke, which he called back to earlier. I just knew you'd love it. You were the most musical of, of this three-man podcast at the moment that seems to be coming out every week, and there's not much rotation at the moment. <laughs> well... <laughs> John's pretty musical. John's John's as musical as I am, I would say. Anyway, okay. that's by the by. This is not here to compare <laughs> notes about who's the most musical person on all stats, because that would be Joe, and that's the end mm. of that. So, John, where will the game be won or lost on Sunday? Ellen Road. <laughs> I like it. Adam? I'm going to say if Rafinha plays and is played in a position further forward, we maybe have a chance just by him being a big moments player. And if he you know, has one of those days, he might just score another one of those Watford screamers and if that's the case then great the other one is that we've said it multiple times now but how we attack centrally versus how they attack out wide and whichever way around we defend and they defend that can we slightly modify that to if we attack centrally <laughs> yeah uh, or if, if we, attack we attack at all yeah. <laughs> 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 and that might that might be a way to, to talk about it anyway this has all been very nihilistic hasn't it it's been it's been quite good fun and cathartic for for me i mean the listeners might not agree but you know whatever so yes check your your patreon feed there'll be things on there things coming up i'm sure although we are in a an intense game week so there might not be as much new content that comes out other than this uh, this week and i'm looking at john for confirmation that that is the case john's nodding that's good so we will be back on monday i suppose with a review of the uh, brighton game but until then listeners enjoy the game and have a great week deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.